The Energy Gang is brought to you by Vertilla Energy. Vertilla in 2018 established this thing called the Path to 100 community. And it brings together thought leaders and industry experts with a goal. Discover solutions, raise awareness, and start a dialogue on how to achieve a 100% decarbonized electric system. The Path to 100 is committed to shortening the time it takes for cities, states, and communities to transition to renewables. There's a lot of information and community building there. And you can find out more at path to 100 org to become part of the discussion. We're also brought to you by Honeywell, a leading supplier of IoT solutions to mission-critical industries around the world. Honeywell Smart Energy helps utilities transform grid operations through advanced solutions and targeted services from edge to cloud. Their electricity, gas, and water solutions put valuable, actionable data in the hands of utilities to better serve customers. That ultimately enables operations to run more efficiently, reliably, safely, and cost-effectively. Learn more at smartenergy.honeywell.com. Com. Green Tech Media Podcasts. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, climate risk disclosure is getting new attention and possible federal action. America's new president is putting financial reporting about climate change at the top of his to-do list. How would it impact investors and public companies, and what impact would it have on emissions? Then, from the first days in office, Trump's team went after environmental protections with the focus of trained assassins. Those efforts are only intensifying in the weeks before Trump leaves the White House. How might Biden stop these regulatory bombs? Last, reactions to Biden's hires are revealing a split in the climate community. What do they reveal about our own theories of change in this changing political moment? Jigger Shah is here. He's president, co-founder of Generate Capital. He joins us from his now usual location, replete with the moon and stars on the wall of his son's bedroom in Bethesda, (laughs) Maryland. Hi, Jigger. Hi. How are we doing? I'm all right. I have to say, you know, um, my kid is now out of school until January 11th. So at five years old, that's not very easy for him. So that sucks. But um, I think that's the, the I, I'm, I have it much better off than most. So well, we should invite him on the podcast, I guess. Keep him busy. <laughs> Catherine Hamilton is the co founder of 38 North Solutions. She's our regular co host. And she is with us from Arlington, Virginia, in her bedroom. Uh, I, I you haven't painted the walls yet to match Jigger's moon and stars. <laughs> no, I have never painted the walls on my bedroom. They're the same color they were when we moved in, I don't know, a long time ago. <laughs> Eventually I will. I think I've painted every other room in the house. A soothing light blue. That's right. My favorite color. Let's turn first to climate risks. So climate risks include everything from extreme weather to political instability to supply chain disruption. And they're being taken seriously by the military, reinsurance companies, and many global corporations. By next year in the UK, nearly every major corporation will be reporting climate risk. But somehow American companies have not had to do this. Now climate risk is the topic du jour in Washington. The Biden transition team identified it as a powerful policy lever in financial markets and the broader business world that could help the president-elect's climate agenda without Congress. But how? Could it happen at the Securities and Exchange Commission where companies disclose legal and other threats? What about a role for the Federal Reserve? What can Biden himself do? So let's talk about climate risk, which our listeners will be familiar with, and then pivot to how this might play out in policy. We've known about climate risk and we've been talking about it for 20 years, but now all of a sudden it looks like it could be on the front burner. Why, Jigger? 
Well, you know, it's one of those things where we've talked about this for a while. Remember when Hank Paulson and Tom Steyer and Bloomberg got together? The Risky and, Business Report. And put the Risky Business Report and said, you know, we should be factoring these in because land is going to be changing in value. And the thing about systemic risks is that you don't think about them <laughs> until they start to happen. So for instance, like the vast majority of our banking system is basically reliant on the value of land, right? The vast majority of the local banks you go to, the people they give money to are not solar developers, they're real estate developers, right? And if and they say, oh yeah, that land is definitely not going to go down because we've done comps and that person sold this house for this much, et cetera. And if that starts changing, well, then what does it do, right? And the financial crisis of 2008 was the mortgage crisis. But remember, we had, um, we had the Bank of England, Mark Carney, agreeing with most of the carbon tracker uh, work that was talking about how there was unburnable carbon and that how the oil industry was going to lose value. And a lot of people who divested made a lot of money off of divesting. It wasn't until we had, you know, wildfire after wildfire and hurricane after hurricane and the insurance premiums are now going through the roof to the extent that the the insurance examiner uh, in California now has to say to people that if you decide not to provide insurance to certain people, we're going to kick you out of the state because it's the only way they can get them to keep writing insurance policies in the state of California. So, you know, I'd love to say that this is like, the Federal Reserve and other people just sort of being bold and, you know, showing real leadership here. But I mean, this is them coming to the situation when it's slapping them in the face. They can't wait any longer to address these issues because they're seeing systemic risks at their doorstep. Well, put another way, it's that uh, Biden's transition team is using this as an opportunity. I mean, they've seen the momentum building in the private sector. So it's not necessarily that they're coming late to the party. It's that they're finally at a point where they can make viable policy based on the momentum. No, it's it a stands. good point. I, my comment is more around systemic risk, right? I mean, the systemic risk was projected in the past. It is now being faced today, right? When you have a trillion dollars of losses predicted in California this year from all of their wildfires and everything else, someone is supposed to pay that bill, right? You actually buy an insurance policy. You say, I have business interruption insurance. I paid extra for the rider for wildfires, right? And when I actually have a loss, you expect the insurance company to pony up a large check, right? And then that insurance company is reinsured by Berkshire Hathaway or somebody else, right? And that person has to pay that check, right? At some point, there are no more people to go to with checks, right? The only check that's left at the end is a Federal Reserve check, which is supposed to be unlimited, but that that feels very painful. It's a very systemic risk. And my point is that we are at that point. There are people absolutely saying to the Federal Reserve now, um, we can't pay for these you know, costs locally. These people still want to live here because it's the only place they can afford to live. But we actually can't figure out how to get the insurance companies to even provide uh, insurance anymore. So, Catherine, Joe Biden promised on his first day he would issue an executive order forcing all public companies to disclose their climate risks and their greenhouse gas emissions. How might this happen? And do we believe it will happen? Yeah, I reached out to Steve Rothstein from Ceres, which is a sustainability nonprofit that works with a lot of corporations and investors. And he is a legitimate expert on this, which I am not. And he said two things. One is that there is nothing more important that we can do next year on climate change than mandate disclosure. 
And that number two, we are behind everybody else in doing so. So first of all, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, has a three-part mission. They're supposed to protect investors, maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitate capital formation. The SEC is the most important agency in this mix. They already have the authority today. They got guidance in 2010 to mandate climate risk disclosure, they have simply never done their jobs to do that. So they have all the authority they need. They do not need any legislative authority. All we need is for the incoming President Biden to say, you need to now do your job. But there needs to be some reshuffling of leadership seats at the SEC in order to do that, right? So there are five commissioners. Uh, It's just like FERC as an independent agency. Um, The the chair will leave, so that will leave two Republicans and two Democrats. Uh, So they could wait until they have a fifth one that Biden would uh, nominate um, to get you know, to get the votes that they potentially need. Um, but that that's not to say they couldn't do it now. Um, but it is crucial. And the other person that's crucial in this will be the Secretary of Treasury. And if it ends up being Janet Yellen, which is kind of the uh, what we, you know, she's been nominated, we think she will probably be the Secretary of Treasury. And she and Mark Carney, whom Jigger alluded to early, did a co-author a report uh a couple months ago um, about this. And she could have an enormous impact too, because she has the she is able to coordinate the Federal Stability Oversight Council, which would basically say, look, we're going to convene all the agencies, all of these commissions, and everybody's going to report on what they're doing on climate change. So SEC, are you doing your job? So she has an enormous amount of input too. Many of the groups involved in establishing Biden's initial campaign policy and then his subsequent priorities as president-elect are putting this at the top of the agenda. How serious do we think this is? I mean, is this something that's just going to roll forward ASAP, Catherine? I think it is at the top of the list. And I certainly think given the picks he's made so far that it will continue to be. Um, This is really something that is of enormous importance. I mean, as Jigger said, it is having a huge impact, um, both on the state side and on the federal side. So right now, there is a public company accounting oversight board, which sets rules for the accounting industry. And they simply need to include climate risk in the accounting profiles. It could have trillions of dollars of impact. Um, And even if you don't care about climate change, if you care about capitalism, if you care about bank stability, you need to care about this. Yeah, but I think part of the reason why the SEC was directed to this in 2010 and refused to um, is that this actually really goes to um, direct impacts to publicly traded companies, right? Remember, if you're a publicly traded company and you're sitting there saying, you know, our company currently is worth $100 billion, right? Assets minus liabilities. And the SEC suddenly says, we've redefined the definition of liabilities such that your liabilities are now an extra $100 billion. Well, now your value of your company is zero, right? And so you could imagine there's a lot of people fighting this, and it's the reason why the SEC hasn't done squat, right? And it's one of those things where I don't quite understand exactly how this is going to go, right? Like, I understand 
how the markets have dealt with this so far, right? They clearly believe that electric vehicles are actually coming, and that's why electric vehicle SPACs have gone crazy, and ExxonMobil is now worth less than NextEra. But I, I just think that getting the SEC in coordination with accounting firms, in coordination with Yellen, because remember, part of this, I think that we continue to sort of struggle with is that the Merrick Garland decision by McConnell is sending shockwaves through everything, right? And so the Senate actually has to approve all of Biden's appointments. And so if McConnell thinks for a second that the people that Biden is putting forward are going to be mavericky mavericks in their position, then he is not going to confirm those people. <laughs> like McConnell's like, Yellen better be really slow at doing this kind of stuff and really careful about not pissing us off, right? And the same thing's true with the SEC chair. The same thing's true with a lot of these positions because like McConnell's saying like, you know, I know these coal companies are worth zero. You know that they're worth zero, but they still have a private equity deal over here that they think they're going to get done. And if you change the rules such that they will definitely get zero, then, you know, those are like really big donors of mine that are going to get affected. The thing is, I just don't think you have to be mavericky to say, all right, if Exxon had to write off 17 to 20 billion dollars in stranded costs, if the six largest banks are not going to finance Arctic drilling, um, if coal plants are shutting down right and left because they're uneconomic, I just don't think it is a leap to say there is something that is causing a risk to this industry that it's going to affect everybody's bottom line. So I I actually think um, you don't have to prove that you're not a maverick to to do this. Um, and you're right, Mitch McConnell does have to get these through the Senate. They've approved Janet Yellen previously, so I think it would be hard. They would be hard pressed. Although, of course, they they go they go the other direction a lot. Um, they had approved Merrick Garland before too, so we'll see. But she's uh, she's a very smart woman. I think she'll be able to to figure out how to how to manage that. One thing I would want to go back to though is the issue of states. So. About 75% of insurance companies are regulated by 10 states. And the states really do set the direction um, on a lot of industry and impact a huge amount of industry. So New York just issued new procedures for about 1,500 banking and other financial institutions that's like $2.5 trillion. Um, and already that's changing the way companies are doing business in New York. California has a website um, for climate-friendly insurance products. And and other states are moving forward too. So states are going to be enormously impactful in all of this. This brings me to the question of who this does actually impact and therefore who will be fighting against it. So if you're a Walmart or a Unilever or a Johnson & Johnson or a GE or an Ikea, you're already disclosing a lot of this information. You're already on board with these policies and um, you've been doing this with in the absence of any policy requiring it. So is this just like oil and gas companies that this will impact? and and Or is it like a broader set of corporations that are going to be fighting against it or impacted by it? I think impact versus fighting are two different questions. Well, let's, let's talk about impact first, then fighting. So on the impact side, everybody will be potentially impacted. I talked to someone who works with a lot of companies, small, especially small and medium companies. And those companies are very sustainable and are trying to do right, the right thing on climate. But a lot of them have supply chains that are really hard to control and that maybe are in China. And, you know, if they're having to disclose all these company emissions that are possibly from coal, that's going to change uh, what they're doing. And that will impact them. So I think 
part of this is managing how we do it, managing how we count, what, how, you know, how do we have really consistent, when, when you have a mandate, you want to make sure that you know what all the rules are and that we're operating under apples and apples. So, you know, planting trees in the Amazon isn't going to be the same as burning coal. You, know, you need to make sure that you are consistent, but everybody potentially could be impacted. Would you agree with that, Jigger? Yeah, I think that, I mean, one of the central tenets when we started Generate Capital was that that risks are felt across all sectors, right? That's really what you learned in the 2008 financial crisis is that you really weren't safe in any of the, um, the you know, different diversification strategies. And I think the same thing is true here. When you think about just how um, cement works in this country, right? And how much emissions come with that, how much agriculture works in this country and how much agriculture is subjected to this stuff. Like, how are you going to deal with that? Like Tyson Foods, like if, if someone says, well, these regulations are going to increase the cost of chicken, you know, by X dollars, like, how are you going to deal with that? Right? Like, it just, I, I don't see how this actually gets, um, done in a way that isn't going to affect every single business in the country, right? When you think about like shipping, right? Like ships are one of the worst polluters in, uh, you know, around. Like when you think about like trains and like diesel consumption, they haven't moved to hydrogen or electric powered trains. And when you think about the airline industry and what this is going to do to the airline industry, like I, I just, I, I, I feel like the one, on the one hand, I would say that this affects everyone, but I think that sometimes particularly within the SEC and Treasury, et cetera, we talk a lot about risk because, I don't know, they have a lot of fun talking about risk. But my sense is, is that this is also going to create a lot of opportunity. And that is another part of this, which, frankly, I don't think people really want to wrap their brains around, right? Which is like, we like to talk about opportunity. But, you know, like the fact that Tesla is now worth more than the next five car companies combined like, I don't even think most politicians or most people we're talking about here actually even understands how to wrap their brain around that concept. And remember, it was only just like 50 years ago that, you know, we used to say that how goes GM goes the U.S. economy. So then that brings me to the question of who's fighting against this. It sounds like a much wider group of companies and players than I initially thought. Yeah, I mean, I think you'll see the National Association of Manufacturers, you know, Chamber of Commerce, two of the largest, most powerful interests in Washington being against most of this stuff, right? And that's why I'm saying that the confirmations are not clear to me, because I think that they may even say to them, you have to say for the record in front of us that you're going to go slow on these things in order to get confirmed, right? Like, I, I, this, is, this is like basically a backdoor carbon tax, Right. And so people are like, are you going to backdoor us? Like, if you, if, are you really going to backdoor us? Right. And I don't, and the thing is, is that it's so much more logical and simple than that. Like, we're basically protecting people's 401ks, we're protecting people's investments, we're protecting the wealth of this country. And so, like, I don't actually see how this is anything but, you know, fully red, white, and blue American. But, but I just, you know, I just think this has gotten so partisan. And so like sort of clear in everyone's minds now that I just think a lot of these companies are going to fight it tooth and nail. Yes, I just think it's going to be really hard to keep our heads in the sand for too much longer because the actual damage from the risk um, and this is simply asking them to disclose um, would be, you know, it continues to happen whether or not you pretend it isn't happening. Um, 
so so having very clear guidelines uh, for any kind of disclosure mandate, I think, is super important so that everybody knows that they're playing off of the same singing off the same song sheet. The other thing I would just mention is that in all the countries that are leading on climate action, their financial regulators are all very involved. It is a key component of anything that we do on climate. So I think it's something that we need to keep our eye on and you know make sure that we fight for. Yeah, the one other thing I'd say is that the the TCFD, which is the you know the climate, um, the the task force on climate related financial disclosures, is really, um, you know, sort of this opt in approach, but has been super successful. I mean, disclosures disclosure has really been climbing since 2017, and amongst the largest companies, I think 60 percent of the 100 largest publicly, you know, traded companies support it. Yeah, there's several organizations. SASB is another one that um, that have voluntary disclosure systems that are working really well. But again, they define risks slightly different from me from each other. So you know, having one consistent definition and disclosure methodology is going to be important. So last question on this: How, Where do you put, both put this on the list of priorities going forward, Catherine? So I think you can walk and chew several pieces of gum at once and maybe even do other things that listen to a podcast at the same time. So I think it's one of the things that the new administration will have to do right away. I'm I'm all in. Yeah, I agree with Catherine. I think this is high in the priority list. I just think that we should all be tempered in our expectations of how, how fast they're going to implement um, things that are potentially going to reduce people's market valuation. Well, coming up, the Trump administration tried to reverse more than a decade's worth of climate change measures. Its efforts continue now, so how hard will that be to undo? First, a quick word about our supporters. We're brought to you by Vertzilla. The Path to 100% is a group of leaders and industry experts working together to identify the fastest, most cost-effective ways to decarbonize electricity. This means addressing economic, scientific, and political challenges that vary around the world. So the Path to 100% is not a one-size-fits-all solution set. Instead, it aims to provide information that can help each nation, state, and community customize its own path to 100%. And the path to 100% is made possible by Vertzilla, a global leader in smart technologies and lifecycle solutions for energy markets. To learn more and download the pathway to 100%, visit pathto100.org. We're also brought to you by Honeywell. The next generation of smart grid technology is here. Honeywell has partnered with leading cellular carriers to integrate 5G and LTE technology into its energy solutions for smarter buildings, cities, and mission-critical markets. Honeywell is using cellular IoT infrastructure to help utilities develop high-speed, reliable, and secure networks. Its scalable and customizable platform makes it easy for utilities to build grid intelligence and help customers find new opportunities for efficiency and automation. Honeywell Smart Energy is delivering the future of utility connectivity, and you can learn more at smartenergy.honeywell.com. The Trump administration has such an expansive anti-regulatory agenda in its final days that several organizations have built trackers to bird dog them. Investigative news outlet ProPublica made a good one, and you can find it online in our show notes. The pursuit of that agenda continues right up until the moment Trump leaves the White House. However, he ultimately decides to go. The New York Times reports that EPA chief Andrew Wheeler has a lengthy remaining list of priorities that he's, quote, determined to complete before Inauguration Day. 
That's on January 20th. It's common for presidents to issue controversial policies in the final days of office, but the Trump team's push to neuter government agencies is unique. It's created a form of mutiny inside the EPA as well. Some changes, like putting scientists back on scientific review boards or snuffing standards that would loosen appliance efficiency, could be quickly undone or pulled back by Biden's team. But there's a lot of damage to undo. What could happen soon and what might take longer or get missed entirely? Before we talk about specifics, I want to discuss how these agencies have been run under Trump. Catherine, how would you describe the state of government in these final days of the administration? Yeah, they're super busy. And all along, the goal has been to just roll back regulation. And that's been through whether it's through executive action, through that, whether that is just through not enforcing the law and statute that is already in place, or whether that is through actually doing final rulemakings, which is what they're trying to focus on now. These are all the things they're doing to try to get done and set set it up to make it much harder for the Biden administration when they come in. So let's talk specifically about what that is. What is the activity going on within agencies that are relevant to to our issues that the Biden team will then have to address? So in some instances, there are executive orders that the administration has put into place that the Biden administration can immediately overturn. Secondly, there is simply a lack of enforcement of existing statute. So for example, an appliance standards. This is one that the government is supposed to be updating. And the administration is saying, no, let's not do that. Let's do something else instead. So there's some that they're simply, they have the authority to do that they're simply not doing. And then, then the final category are these final rulemakings. And if you do a final rulemaking, you do have to, in order to undo it, it can take a couple of years. So it doesn't mean it goes into place right away. In fact, Congress can overturn it if they want to um, within 60 days of having, and this is 60 days of legislative session days, so it's actually a lot longer than 60 days, um, can undo it. And they did that in in a very efficient way with Obama. They had they rolled back about 16 rulemakings um, after Obama left. So, so the Congressional Review Act is a very powerful tool for doing that. So they could do it that way. Otherwise, the Biden administration would have to do notice and comment. So they'd have to put out a proposed new rulemaking and go through comment and stakeholder process. And that just takes a while to do. Um, But that's the other way they could do it. Yeah. So that's a summary of the activity that the Biden administration will will have to undertake as it comes into office. And I saw it described as the Humpty Dumpty approach in a New York Times article from one expert, meaning that you just have to put everything back together again as quickly as possible. Here are some of the actual things they they need to address. Um, The Trump team is trying to prevent banks from withholding credit on the basis of social, political, or environmental considerations. They're trying to exclude secondary environmental and health benefits from any regulations on air pollution. They're trying to put in place this rule that would force EPA scientists to make all private data public uh, for health studies, which could completely dismantle the way that they undertake these studies because a lot of people who participate do not want their information public. And so if you're making that information public, it'll make it a lot harder to do the research on the health consequences of pollution, for example. That's something that the administration has been pushing very aggressively. And in fact, one um, senior official within the EPA publicly pushed back on the Trump White House, um, circumventing traditional protocols, uh, which created its own kind of political drama. Uh, They're trying to loosen efficiency standards for clothes washers and dryers. Uh, There's a ton of stuff that they are trying to 
solidify by January 20th. Jigger, as you consider this list, does anything stand out for you? Is there anything that worries you in particular? Not really. I mean, look, I think that I just think the notion that Biden's going to come in and want to be our the exact opposite of Trump is incorrect, right? He has his own stuff. So I think a lot of How this is stuff, that incorrect? It, it's exactly what he's going to be. It's going to when it comes to <clears> these I doubt issues. It. I think in general, like, like, I don't think he'll he'll touch mercury and toxics because it'll be like most of the coal plants have already um, implemented the the measures to to deal with the mercury air rules on top of that biden's trying to like shut down all coal plants by 2035 uh to decarbonize the grid so like he's like do i spend a bunch of time like redoing this stuff over here that we've been doing for 20 goddamn years or do i actually just make the whole thing moot by shutting down all coal plants by saying we're going to do 100 percent clean energy like i think what you'll find is is that because the technology that we now have access to is so much better than where it was before. I think you will see that his focus on the things that, you know, basically uh, environmental groups have been pushing for the last 20 years will start to move away from those things towards uh, a, a greater recognition of, you know, sort of the fact that the technologies we have are actually better decarbonizing and cheaper for consumers. And they'll just start mandating a lot of that stuff out. Yeah, but also I would say that in their, the situations at which in which some of those cases are in court, the Biden administration would simply not defend them um, when 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 the enviros have taken them to court. So then those would go away by virtue of that. So the good news is that there are some groups that have been formed from former EPA employees. One of them is called Save EPA, and one of them is called the Environmental Protection Network. And those groups have gotten together to lay out a roadmap of how at least for EPA rulemakings and actions, um, the new administration could come in and deal with them and how to prioritize them. So making sure that you're not spending a lot of time doing things that aren't going to make as much of a difference um, as others. Yeah, the good news is that we have a lot of very smart minds who've been watching this closely uh, with a lot of legal expertise who will be able to inform the uh, Biden team's approach. Jigger, you raise an important question, which is, On something like power plant regulations, which let's say the Trump team's rule gets finalized, it'll take many years to create a new set of rules, right? So is it better to try a different kind of policy pathway and somehow get us closer to 100% clean energy? I mean, that's kind of an absurd prospect given the state of Congress, but like there are other tools to help shut down coal power plants, for example. So maybe in that instance, the Biden team just says, well, we're not going to create another rule. Like there's another policy pathway that will help us close down power plants and achieve this same outcome. Yeah, I'll give you another example, right? So for instance, the National Association of Manufacturers and Chamber of Commerce that we just talked about, which are two of the most powerful organizations in DC, they both support micro changes to the Federal Power Act that would forth that would force Southern Company, Florida Power and Light, and other people into RTOs, right? Because they recognize that if every single utility in the entire country was in a wholesale power trading system, that you would actually get 20% lower wholesale prices for for manufacturers and for uh, large corporations, right? And they're for, uh, for that, right? 
Well, guess what else it does? It allows for corporate PPAs in every single one of those jurisdictions, which are currently not legal. And so now Google and all those folks go in and say, we're going to do a corporate PPA and we're going to basically do, you know, one in Alabama and one in Georgia and one in, you know, Mississippi, et cetera, right? So I, I think that there are ways to change things that actually could get a lot of Republican support that are more market-based. And I think because of where our cost structure is today, I think you're going to see a lot of areas where you can do that. And I know that that's not something the environmentalists love to do, but I think that there is actually a pathway for clean energy entrepreneurs to actually go that direction and get a lot of Republican support in the Senate. And so the one other thing I didn't want to miss, though, is this Schedule F stuff that the Trump administration has done. So basically... So describe what it is. Yeah. Basically, what he has done is pass an executive order that basically has all the agency heads like OMB or Department of Energy that has to classify people who have confidential policy determining, policy making, or policy advocating positions. And these are people who are what we call the civil service, right? They generally stay around and they're the institutional knowledge across all administrations. They don't actually have uh, a political bent and some of them actually might be, you know, like deep-seated Republicans um, that are there, right? But they, they actually matter because that's how the government knows what can and can't be done from a day-to-day basis because we have a myriad of rules that contradict each other that have to be sorted through. And what this classification does is basically allows uh, agency heads on the very last day before Trump leaves office to fire a lot of these folks, right? And and that like seems completely uncool. And so what, what I think is happening right now is um, the U.S. Congress is being asked to basically make this an issue in the appropriations bills and is basically saying, if you don't rescind this or somehow neuter it, then... Um, we're not going to pass a budget. Um, and we'll see whether the Congress does that. But I think that, as I've said before, I really think personnel is policy. And I think losing all these people is what I worry the most about, not these individual rules. Yeah, my friend who was a, a an EPA employee before she retired, she said there's still a lot of really good people there. So there is there, there are definitely really good staff that remain. Of course, if there were a second Trump term, I think a lot of those folks would leave. But there are there are folks who've hung in. Let's go to our third topic now. With Trump soon going out the back door of the White House, we now have a new door cracked open, one that could lead to a new era of climate policy. But how do we move through? Do we pry it open with a crowbar or slink in through the crack and open it from the inside? In other words, what's the best way to get things done? The competing forces within the climate movement are now starting to clash. Activists on the far left are already criticizing some of Biden's choices. For example, the Sunrise Movement just held a protest against Biden's top pick for economic advisor, Brian Deese. He's Obama's former acting director of the Office of Management and Budget. And until this week, he was BlackRock's global head of sustainable investing. BlackRock is the biggest asset manager in the world. Brian's got a strong climate record, but Sunrise activists who have a lot of power right now in the climate movement, vocally challenged the pick, saying Deese is going to be too close to fossil fuels. Many people, including Bill McKibben, came to his defense. And Jigger, I know you know Brian. Some activist groups went even further, and they challenged climate hawk and former Secretary of State John Kerry, saying he isn't bold enough. Uh, John Kerry is going to be Biden's new climate envoy. So we're going to talk briefly about those reactions. But I bring this up because... I was reading some reactions to this 
over the holiday weekend, including one by popular progressive journalist Matt Iglesias, who wrote, quote, the people writing checks to this group, this group being Sunrise Movement, are doing enormous damage to the cause of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and have been for a while. This caused a typical Twitter dust up, but it revealed this split that I think is going to come to define Biden's climate agenda. And Iglesias followed up with this. To make climate progress, you either need A, ideas that will generate progress on climate change that Republicans will vote for, or B, to help candidates with normal Dem climate views win GOP-held Senate seats. Picking endless intraparty fights ain't it. So given this pressure, what is the theory of change for this administration? What do we think it should be? How does it differ among the groups now tussling on the left for influence? I know that was a lot. So let's go back to the actual picks first and then work our way from there. Jigger, who is Brian Dees and why why did we have this reaction from activists against him? Well, Brian is, you know, somebody who has been in public service for most of his career. Uh, You know, he basically um, was at the Center for American Progress and then joined uh, the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign in 2008. And then after... Clinton was defeated in the primaries. He went to go work as an economic advisor for Obama. So he was at the National Economic Council. He was a special assistant to the president. Um, I first interacted with him when he was, um, you know, like supporting the imposition of tariffs on solar panels for the Obama administration. And, you know, we got to be, you know, know each other pretty well. And then I've interacted with him um, a lot since he took the role at BlackRock. Um and, you know, I, I would say that I think that when you think about someone like Brian or others, they're really, you know, public servants, right, who care deeply about how to make government work within the constituencies that are there. So Brian, for instance, took over for John Podesta as the head climate person under Obama when John Podesta left. And so, you know, Brian helped negotiate the Paris Accords with Kerry. And so he's had, you know, a lot of things that he's done in the climate space. And frankly, I would say that having, you know, known Brian for a long time, I mean, Larry Fink would not have written that letter if it wasn't for Brian beating him up every day. That's um, the CEO of BlackRock uh, writing a letter about how climate change is going to be an important part of their investment Yeah, strategy. so I think he's been a real, um, uh, you know, I think he's been a real champion where it counts. I, You know, look, I think that there's a lot of people who rightfully believe that, we need to go bolder, faster. I certainly believe we need to go bolder, faster. But I think that to suggest that um, we shouldn't have experienced people in these positions um, doesn't make any sense. Catherine, what are your thoughts on the reaction to Brian Deese or John Kerry? Why these picks? And what do you get the sense? What, what are people reacting against? So I think the the picks um, in in some of these situations are really based on experience. Like they want to, he Biden wants to get the people who have the best, most experience uh, to be in there working on these issues. Um, and he has to balance that with wanting to make step changes because he will have to do that. Uh, just the reality of climate change, whether or not Sunrise wants him to do or not. Um, I think it is Sunrise's job to push. That's fine. I think it's really important to do that. You will note that there are no Democratic senators that have been been floated for positions yet. He needs to hold as many as he can in the Senate. So those have not been put forward. Um, I think all of the picks show uh, they're di- a lot of them are diverse. They show a lot of experience. 
Uh, some of them are more small C conservative or you know centrist. Others are not. So I think there there there's a variety. I think it's fine for people to come out and and challenge them. I think that's important for discourse. Um, but I think in the end, uh, there will need to be some movement in the House, especially on trying to reconcile all of the differences out there in approach, or at least allow for them to be there. I've talked in the past about my evolution on the role of activism on these issues. So I think historically, I've been a little bit more technocratic and very centrist and a believer that the economics of this issue will drive action and that you do need to get a wide coalition of folks on board. But I, in the last couple of years, I have really come around to the role of activists in pushing change. Um, the idea of making environmental justice a, a key piece of some of these issues. With that said, I find the rea- the activist reactions to these picks somewhat laughable. And I mean, th- there's a clear case to be made that some of these folks are, are coming in. Like the Trump administration has done everything in its power to eliminate expertise from government. And you have to pick people who can come in and maybe they're not the absolute most progressive person you can have on this issue, but they understand how these operations run. They understand the levers of power within agencies. They understand someone like John Kerry is someone who's really trusted and respected on the international stage. We need people who understand how these relationships and agencies are run. And that's what I think Biden is doing with these picks. Um, So I understand some of the pushback and the urgency and so forth. But the idea that you would create a protest you know, organize people and use all your energy and some money to pro- protest someone like Brian Dees seems really silly to me. But the Sunrise Movement did not get out the vote for Biden because of his expertise and in technocratic approach. They did it because he promised a very strong and uh, leapfrogging, game-changing climate plan. And they're going to hold his feet to the fire on it. That's right. And they're going to stick to that role. And and I understand that. Yeah, I would. So I would reframe it a little bit in the sense that, first, for instance, I think Next Gen had a much bigger role to play in getting out the youth vote than Sunrise did. That's Tom Steyer's um, group. That's billionaire Tom Steyer. Yeah, group, right? because because he's been at it for a while and he was pretty technocratic about it. I Look, I think Sunrise was super valuable in getting the Green New Deal on the agenda and getting all the Democratic primary members to care deeply about you know, the Green New Deal. But I think that the thing that I oppose here is I love activists, as you guys know, but like the thing I oppose here is cancel culture. I really don't think it's in anyone's best interest to cancel people. I think it is absolutely the right thing to do to say to people like, here are our principles and you actually have to be part of the principles that were laid out in the commission that, you know, Biden put together after the primaries were over, right, between the Bernie faction and the Bernie and the Biden faction, they came together, they came up with a report. So clearly, all these people that are getting nominated better, like, agree with what Biden himself said he was supporting, right, during the presidential campaign. Um, but I think that the suggestion that these people should be canceled, particularly when, like, I look at, like, immigration, like, where Cecilia Munoz, like, was, has been canceled on immigration, 
I mean, she was just doing what Obama told her to do, right? <laughs> like around around immigration when Obama was really tough on immigration because he thought he would cut a better deal in Congress. Like the notion that like that was her and her own ideas, right? Like I, I just think that in general, like we go too far in canceling people and we should be battling on the war of ideas and not, you know, people individually. I am most interested in who Biden picks for his domestic climate advisor. I think Kerry as his climate envoy is a super smart pick. And certainly he has evolved and been involved in these issues for all along. So some of the discussion is around former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm, current Washington governor and our favorite (laughs) Apollo project guy, Jay Inslee, um, and Ali Zaidi, who is New York's deputy secretary for energy and environment. Those are some some of the top three names. And certainly John Podesta is still in the running too. But I think it's going to be super interesting to see who he picks for that domestic advisor, because that will set the tone for how all of the other agencies are going to have to come to the table with climate. So finally, Catherine, I just want to revisit Matt Iglesias's framing of this issue and get your thoughts. He said, to make climate progress, you need either ideas that will generate progress on climate change that Republicans will vote for, or to help candidates in the Democratic Party with climate views win GOP-held Senate seats. Picking endless intra-party fights ain't it. I agree that the intra-party fights can be quite exhausting. But what do you think about that other framing? Is that the only way to get climate progress right now? That, you know, basically take GOP seats or uh, get Republicans to vote for something? Great. Win GOP states, like take them back, hold, you know, make make elections about climate. The other thing I think we have to do is not make the GOP as a monolithic uh, party and try to pick people off. And I think we can pick people off in ways that can still be very progressive. So I would focus on that, not focus on let's like go to the right on everything we do just so we can get McConnell to do something. No, I think we need to start winning people over one by one because they need and should care about this. Um, I think there is far less inter-party fighting in the Senate than there is in the House. So the House is a whole nother thing. But on the Senate side, I think we need to start picking them off. Do either of you think this is going to define the Biden administration, these kinds of fights? I doubt it. I mean, I think that it's going to be a sideshow and that's fine. But I think that the the real thing that's going to define um, the Biden administration with Congress, I think, is McConnell's deep and un- understanding and correct understanding that bipartisanship is bad, right? That it, That for his party, that bipartisanship is bad. It does not help him in his election choices. Like the Merrick Garland decision by McConnell was brilliant on McConnell's part and makes complete logical sense. I just think that the notion that um, that folks should be bipartisan because um, it's the right thing to do is asinine. And my sense is, is that like, I think when you think about Biden's own point of view, is that bipartisanship is possible, right? That he can actually like smoke cigars with somebody and go into a you know closed room and do all this stuff. And I think that will be the big political story is that Biden was completely wrong on bipartisanship and will not be able to bring the Republicans along on legislation that matters in the Senate. Let's go to free electrons now. Catherine, what do you got this week? So I'm a visual learner, y'all. When I use a cookbook, if there is not a picture of what it's supposed to look like when it's done, I do not want to make it. 
Um, I've been a big fan of Edward Tufte, who wrote the visual display of quantitative information and other books about how visualization is really important to convey data and analysis and information. So I'm all in on that stuff. So I'm always looking for charts that are helpful, that it can help me visualize and contextualize a lot of data. So I just wanted to point to some work that Third Way has done. And um, this is on mapping renewables, clean energy, net zero state targets. And, you know, Third Way comes to this with a perspective of They want to be technology inclusive for nuclear and CCS and those types of technologies. But what's helpful is just having a bunch of charts and state, you know, interactive state maps that show not only what every state target is, but also what all the utilities have signed up to do and committed to do. And I think it's just really useful to have it out there. So it's on thirdway.org. You can find it on um, at Lindsay N. Walter. She is one of their policy folks. Uh, It's on her Twitter feed. You can also connect to it on that. But I, I thought it was a pretty useful map. Yeah, people don't know this, but every time Catherine looks at her notes, she actually has them written in pictograms. <laughs> I, I I love it, by the way. It's and I think that the um, I don't agree with Third Way most of the time, but I but I love those guys dearly. You're a visual learner. To think that we did this podcast for years without ever seeing each other when we were recording. <laughs> it's a total audio medium. Oh well. <laughs> Jigger, what's your free electron? So I've got two. Um, One is directly related to our last topic. Um, Steny Hoyer this week said that um, he's in favor of bringing back earmarks. And I frankly think that is the only thing I could possibly think of that solves Congress. You know, basically, it just buys off votes. And it's awesome, right? You need a new bridge in your town. Fantastic. You get a bridge. You get a bridge. You get a building. You get a whatever, right? And I think that... That's how you pick them off. And it is so amazing that they have finally come to this conclusion. I know David Plotz, our friend from um, the Political Gab Fest, has been saying this for years, and it's so true. So I'm really glad to see that. And that might actually make what I just said about Biden and getting support from the Senate um, not true anymore. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out was um, um, our good friends in Texas have just announced that they are um, building a $1.6 billion solar project uh, over the next 36 months. That'll bring about $250 million in local landowner payments and uh, nearly $200 million in property tax payments um, across the, um, the the life of the project. And I think you're going to see a lot more of these announcements. And I think you're going to see a lot more specificity around how much money is going to landowners and how much money is going to property taxes, which was not uh, in previous press releases, as we roll out over the next Uh, 48 years, because I think you will see that the political efficacy of really pointing out how many dollars the solar and wind industry are putting back into local economies is starting to become uh, super important. Yeah, the scale of these projects is mind boggling. So it makes sense to include those numbers. So I have a problem, a holiday problem. And every time I express my problems and ask for listener advice, I get a ton of people who reach out and help me. So my problem is with Christmas lights. Um, For two years in a row, I've tried to buy LED Christmas lights. And I have LEDs all over my house. So I know that the quality of light is really good. But the warm white LED Christmas lights are terrible. They're so bad. 
I I mean, I, I I think about a warm white bulb in my house and then a warm white Christmas light. They're a completely different quality of light, and I cannot figure out what's going on. So I read New York Times wire cutter to try to figure out the best lights. Of course, the ones that they recommend are all sold out. But I went and did other research and tried to figure out, you know, next tier lights. Uh, and all of the I, – I bought three different kinds, and all of them are terrible. And I cannot figure out – why the quality of light for these lights are different than the ones uh, in the bulbs in my house. So I don't know if either of you have had any holiday problems with your lighting systems. Uh, If so, tell me what you did to fix it. And if anybody out there has any suggestions on the right lights to buy, please let me know. It's all about the Benjamins. Yeah, well, I, I mean, <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, the light bulb in your house costs like four bucks. They're trying to get down to like eight cents per light in these Christmas yeah. lights. And so you got the worst rejects that came out of the Chinese LED factory. Well, I went to like, I mean, I tried to buy some GEs and some Sylvanias and try to use some of those top tier light manufacturers and they're all sold out. So I was probably coming to the problem too late. So I did. I think you're probably right about that. But if someone has experience with some of these top tier manufacturers and the quality of light is good, let me know. Um, oh, one one small anecdote, which you guys may end up not appreciating. But like when I used to sell a lot of residential solar, um, uh, we used to have these customers that had a ton of net metering credits at the end of the year. And PG&E and Southern California Edison wouldn't cut them a check for it and they would just keep rolling over. So I had three clients who literally would put on those like ABC, you know, Christmas light special like things at their house just to burn all their net metering credits at the end of the year. (laughs) So they would like (laughs) have these massive like $800 electricity bills, but they would be free because they had net metering credits from solar. (laughs) So, um, so Christmas spirit enabled by that metering credits. That's awesome. My big issue for Christmas this year is that two people in my family want accordions. So it's just a whole nother level oh, of complicated. My. <laughs> Not one, but two? <laughs> two people want them. Yes. Oh, well, well, gosh. We'll have to have your polka band create a new theme song for us. <laughs> <laughs> Roll out the barrel. That's it for the show. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Jigger Shah and Catherine Hamilton are my co-hosts. And thanks a lot for listening. If you want to show your support, hook us up with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Spotify. We have a ton of listeners on Spotify now, and they're sending out these tags about how your listening went. And I'm seeing a lot of folks tag us showing that we're their top show. So if you want to support us and send out the word on social media, you can tag us in your Spotify 2020 playlist as well. Um, Thanks a lot for helping us out and for listening to the show and hope everybody's uh, end of year holiday season is going well. We'll catch you next week. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Thanks for being here.